I'm Deb Grant. And I'm Eamon Murta. And you are now listening to us via ACAST. And they assure me that that will be no problem for any of you. Let's see how that pans out. Mm. This week this week on the episode, we are talking about copyright law, about songs that sound like other songs, about the fact that there are only eight notes in the note alphabet. Can you tell I studied music at an academic level? Yeah, and, there's 12, uh, mate, there's 12. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped out of university after two years. We didn't get uh, to See, the they did that one. in the second year. You see, at the end of the second year, they started about the other four notes. Anyway, that's what we're talking about. What else are we talking about? Well, in this vaguely documentary-themed show where I'm right at home in my happy place, we're going to talk about another incredibly long documentary. This time, I stare at the genius, supposedly, of Kanye West and his six-hour car crash documentary. Speaking of docs, our guest today is absolute documentary royalty. Oh, he can spin a few yarns, and that's exactly what he does. (laughs) Tony Palmer, responsible for documentaries about Leonard Cohen, Frank Zappa, Peter Sellers, uh, who else? Cream. The Beatles. The Beatles, Ginger Baker, absolutely everyone. And I'm not just talking, I'm talking proper up close and personal documentaries. This man has made docs about pretty much every single legend of 60s and 70s music. And uh, as I say, he can spin a few yarns. He hangs out with astronauts. He's best mates with John Lennon. This is uh, a lot of fun, this interview. So uh, strap in. I hope you're ready. Oh, mate, it's going to be a beautiful thing. I'm just sweeping up all these names that have been dropped all over the floor. Let's pod. (laughs) Let's pod. Murda, your name hasn't changed and I still so enjoy saying it. Please tell me what goes around. Well, actually, that's where you're wrong because I've got plans. Yeah, I've seen a hole in the market and I've decided to start my own brand new radio show. (laughs) It's called Ames Frankenstein Late Laboratories. What do you think? Um, <laughs> Sound a little I was familiar? muscling in on my turf there. <laughs> well, this is uh, so obviously I'm not going to do that because who would dare muscling on your turf? I wouldn't want the uh, the Dublin destroyer coming mm. after me like that. But the reason I make light of the uh, the late lab and your former name, should we say, is because of copyright reasons. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but at the moment, the music business is awash with angry copyright trials. Mm. Ed Sheeran and uh, Johnny McDade from Snow Patrol are being sued by a grime artist for um, a bit in the song that goes, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? And the other song goes, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? They're very similar. And uh, why isn't Ed Sheeran suing the Snow Patrol guy? Well, Ed Sheeran, (laughs) they're they're together. They wrote the song together. Oh, gotcha. They've got terribly righteous about it. So Ed was um, on the stand and he was saying, I would never sue anyone. It's never even crossed my mind to sue someone for this. I mean, you know, I know how music works and blah, blah, blah. And the other guy, old Johnny, Johnny's angry. He's going, he finds it abhorrent that people Mm. would possibly steal a lyric or a song. So, you know, they've, they've gone big on their defence. But it's not just them. There's lots of it. Dua Lipa, she's not had a good month. So she got sued by, (laughs) she got sued by a 70s band called Wiggle and Giggle. Um, I know. Now I'm just thinking Wiggle and Giggle probably need the money, so I'm not going to blame them. Um, But then a week later, she got sued by a Florida reggae band um, about another song. And basically, so she's been sued twice at the same time. 
And I'm just thinking, you know, there are 12 notes in <laughs> Western scales, right? The 12 notes. We've had global pop music for over 70 years now. These kind of claims, I mean, are they just... Surely we've kind of played most everything by now. I mean, it seems like... It's hard not to sound a little like something about that. I don't know if Dua Leap is hanging around on the Florida reggae scene or, you know, is big on Wiggle and Giggle's back catalogue. But um, surely these things are going to happen. And I'm wondering, maybe, maybe we need to think about these copyright laws a little yeah, I mean, like you say, there's a finite amount. It's like, you know, this is going to sound terrible. But like, it just amazes me how people just think the fucking world revolves around them. Like, what? Mm. <laughs> and they're great music. <laughs> like, why would you Lipa have? I mean, maybe they, maybe it is a ripoff. I don't know. I, you know, it has certainly happened. It is. I'll tell you what, it is really similar. Is but, it? you know, it's okay. like, it's like a chord progression. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. you know, I could play that. You yeah. know, it's just one of those. That's the thing. And it's not only that there's a finite amount of notes, there's a finite amount of notes that sound good together to the human ear, you know. That's so true. that kind of That's narrows true. it down even further. So if there's a chord progression that sounds pleasant, it's unlikely that you're going to be the first person or the only person who who thinks about it. The outcome of this court case will be really interesting and I think it would be a much, much bigger deal if the news weren't so obviously consumed with all kinds of other stuff at the moment. You know, I think it'll be really interesting to see how it turns out. Well, the other thing is, like, you know, a lot of music now is, is kind of really about the production rather than the notes. Yeah. Because you can play the same notes, but in different productions it can sound very different indeed. Yeah. I've been looking through... Uh, you know, a load of copyright cases and going back to some of the classic ones like He's So Fine by the Shangri-Las uh, was uh, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. And you kind of get oh, that yeah. because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Julian, Julian, and it, then he's like, My Sweet Lord, you, you know, yeah. He's So Fine. It is the same tune. And he can't really say, you know, George Harrison must have heard that song yeah. being in that yeah. scene for all that time. So I can kind of see where that comes from. But like I say, does Dua Lipa really hang around the Florida reggae scene? I'm thinking yeah. that's not going to happen. And then I looked at some other ones. I mean, there's just, I found a big list on the internet of like you know, contentious cases. And um, one that really struck me was, I don't know, not long ago, Radiohead sued uh, Lana Del Rey mm. for, the, for, for ripping off Creep, basically. Mm. And... I listened to the Lana Del Rey song and oh my God, she totally ripped off people. I mean, it's like, it is like note for note and it's really, really incredibly similar. There cannot be an accident about yeah. this. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. Her ripping off Radiohead like that. Then I looked a little further into Creep by Radiohead. Well, the Hollies sued them. The Hollies <laughs> sued them for, for the air that I breathe, which doesn't sound quite as similar, but you know, I can... If you listen to it, you can hear the similarities. And then we said the Hollies got a credit, a writing credit on Creep. What? And Those then, songs aren't similar. That's nonsense. Well, that's honestly, there's loads. But I just find it really interesting. Like, how long can this go on? And there are so many ways in which we all influence each other now. Is it really right that someone in 1950 spent 10 minutes writing a song and is still getting paid for it and no one else can use those notes? I don't know. I um, think you have to draw... If something is like a note-for-note copy, this is my completely un unscientific layman's take on it, This is right? why we come to if you, I Deb, was the because... judge, Judge Grant... <laughs> God help us. <laughs> the hanging judge. If it doesn't immediately make the other songs spring to mind... Do you know what I mean? When you yeah. hear it, like I would never have put Creep and the Hollies together. I would never have put or 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 the air that I breathe. I could yeah. never have put I would never have put Good Times and 
uh, need you tonight to together yeah. ever. I wouldn't even mix those together. Well, that would be, I mean, unless it was a, uh, a wedding. <laughs> and I for a set coming on. <laughs> scraping the barrel. I wouldn't mix those two tracks together. They don't, they don't, they don't sound like each other. Mm. So think about the world of copyright and the amount of stuff going around at the moment and keep an eye on these stories because I think it's, it's just, it just strikes me that some of it is a little bit fishy. Mm. And I'm not sure I'm totally, totally relaxed about it. I'm with you. Like I say, if Justice Grant was on the bench, none of this but, would be getting through. Yeah. Well, anyway, join me later for Ames Frankenstein's Lake Laboratory, okay? <laughs> What goes around, or should I be asking the question, because we know it's coming, what documentaries have you been watching lately? I know, honestly, I'm so boring, it's terrible. <laughs> no, I love, do you know what? All the documentaries that you watch, it gives me the opportunity to decide whether or not I want to spend the time watching well, them. The, if I get a synopsis from you, sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't need to watch it now. Exactly. Well, I wasn't looking to put another one of these out there, you know, because I, I, I'm aware that uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a one note that I'm banging away on this podcast continuously. But, you know, it brings me a lot of joy. And I think, you know, every music fan wants to find out more about music. So, hey, I'm going to keep doing it. Sue me, bitch. I wasn't looking for this. I absolutely wasn't looking for this. And then um, after the, you know, six, eight hour Beatles get back documentary, who's going to come up and challenge the Beatles for that kind of content? Well, of course, it's only Kanye West, isn't it? Ah, yes. And I literally just... I, I sometimes when I'm doing a really boring Peloton ride, I'll treat myself to a documentary and I mm. just watched the first 45 minutes of it while on my Peloton earlier today. So it's fresh there in my mind go. and I'm excited about it too. So let's talk about it. Go on. Well, first of all, it is an absolute perfect example of the power of self-belief. Kanye West was not a man crippled by self-doubt. <laughs> first of all, he really lives, he really lives for his music. And secondly, his mum, Donda, mm. was just the nicest, most supportive parent. She was so delightful. Every scene she's in in this documentary, and there are six hours of this documentary, so it's a lot. She just lights up the room. She says such positive things. She gives him such great advice. She allows him to really stretch and, and try and do new things, but she always tries to pull him down and grounds him. And it's really interesting because the the... The premise of the documentary is his mate Cootie had got a, a a camera and he said, oh, just film me for a bit. And he ended up filming him for like four, five, six years, like just following him around everywhere on his ascent from being the guy who made a couple of beats in, in a studio and got a couple of B-sides or whatever. And then going all the way up to the point where, you know, he does, he finally gets signed to, to Rockefeller and it all becomes massive. Spoilers, I haven't gotten there yet. Well, no, that that actually happened in real life, so it's not really a spoiler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, think, I think I think if you're going to say spoiler, that'd be for a film or something. But if it's an actual documented, like you know, it's literally a, a historical event that that happened. So anyway, you know, he gets to that stage, and then of course uh, he basically goes way over the top. And bless him, I am going to maybe this is a spoiler, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, so his mother dies, mm. and that's a very tragic moment. Um, and he kind of then drops, like he stops being filmed by this guy and he just moves away from his old circle. He changes his name to Yi and he starts, you know, going on this mad celebrity trip and all that sort of stuff. There's a few years where they're kind of not together and then he comes back and they hook up again. And so he starts filming him again and, and tries to get the documentary going again. 
and Kanye just is he does not look like a well man and mm. he is absolutely surrounded by yes men he's quite fierce so i think it w- you would need a pair if you were going to say kind of that's a shit idea mate don't mm. do that like i say he is not crippled by self doubt but he really really looks like someone who's had a massive breakdown mm. and he gets very religious and then he's off on all his trump stuff when he talks about it he's very clear he's like, i'm not you know there's nothing wrong with me i'm just a, they don't like it when a black man talks like this and all this sort of stuff and I kind of get that, but I tell you what, you watch it and you think, oh man, this guy needs his mum. Mm. You know, he needs a hug. He needs someone to just reel him in a bit and bring him back because I found the first two episodes really fascinating and interesting. And, you know, I he really was such a driven guy and I'm glad he got to where he got to. And I, I think well done because he worked really hard for it. And then the last one is kind of strange because you don't see the mega blow up of his career because they kind of split up at that stage. Mm. But then when they come back together and it's all Kardashians and Trump and that weird time and Kanye just doesn't seem together. Do you know what I mean? He mm. really doesn't seem like 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 the person he was in the first four hours of this incredibly mm. stupidly long documentary. <laughs> And it made me, I, it, I, was, I ended up being quite upset by it because I just thought, I mean, he is a very much a chalk or cheese kind of guy. I mean, you, you're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. And I understand why people hate him. I remember him doing that Glastonbury set and everyone moaning about, oh, how can they have him on? And I remember like having big arguments with people saying, well, it might not be your cup of tea, but you had Mumford and Son who released one album headline Glastonbury last year. And now you've got a black guy who's had six platinum albums and you're moaning that he doesn't deserve the top slot. I think he deserves it. And then he shows up. Do you remember that set? Did you watch that? No, no. I'm just thinking, I'm sure people were moaning about Mumford and Sons as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was, I'll tell you that. But um, so Kanye rocks up and he's in this um, levitating white cube, yeah, at the start. And he sings a couple of songs. It's stark white lighting, just him in this cube that's kind of hovering above the stage and kind of moving around at different angles and stuff. It's kind of really stark and really, and I thought, fucking hats off to him. That is some balls. He's like, just watch me. I'm Kanye and I'm going to do my thing. I didn't realise he was going to do it for the whole set. (laughs) So the whole set goes on. There are no other lights. There's a very self-indulgent piece with a a vocoder and all this sort of stuff. And he does a lot of rambling and a lot of talking. And it just, unfortunately, even though I wanted it to be fantastic, it it kind of, it was a bit embarrassing by the end. And then the best bit was right at the end, he, uh, he gets on a cherry picker to be um, like flown over the crowd as they do Superfly. And I think when he, when he starts the song, he goes, I'm going to say, no, I'm not. Yeah, fuck it. I am going to say, you've just seen the greatest rock and roll artist in the world. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Kanye, you're in Britain, mate. That kind of chat does not yeah. go down well. What you want to do is you want to say, sorry, everyone. I just, um, I, I'm quite pleased with how my album's gone. And then everyone will go, brilliant, lovely. Yes. If you say shit like that, everyone's going to turn on you in an instant. Absolutely. Anyway, so then he jumps in this cherry picker and you, you can see that he suddenly realises that the cherry picker is much higher than he thought it was. <laughs> he's got white knuckles holding on to the, the little rim at the top and he's trying to look like he's enjoying it, but he has the face of someone who's falling down a lift shaft. Oh, it's, uh, dear. Quite something. But you see all that and you see all this um, incredible self-belief and basic showing off and all that sort of stuff. When you watch the whole documentary, you realise man has worked for it. Man works very hard for it. And now it's got to the stage where he is just 
he's built himself a beautiful gilded prison. Mm. And he will never get good advice again, I don't think. Yeah. And that really, it, it broke my heart, really. It's, it's sad to see someone kind of lose touch of reality in the way he has. Yeah, because he was so down to earth. You know, like I say, I only watched the first 45 minutes, but like... You know, his whole thing was like, I'm not going to rap about killing people. That's not my life. Yeah, my mum is yeah. an English teacher. <laughs> like, yeah, I love that. Just like, yeah. What are you going to do? I, yeah, well, you know, sorry, that isn't my world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and just like, and it, it's amazing to see. Because now, um, when you hear his like early music at the start of the documentary, you're like, obviously, that's a fucking great record that's going to be a huge hit. Like, what is wrong with these record labels that aren't interested? But that's because he redefined, you know, many people yeah. have redefined hip hop. But, you know, he created a sound that was his own. And mm. I just, I love that moment. I mean, it's horrible to watch, but when he goes into Rockefeller for the first time and he's playing All Falls Down to, mm. like, the, the, the executive assistant and, like, some other admin person, and they're just, like, laughing behind their hands because they think he's mental. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, you're a bunch of fucking idiots. Like, the fa- yeah. and I just, and he looks so kind of slightly crestfallen, but he's just like, this is annoying because they can't, you know, they're yeah. not recognizing what a different thing that I'm bringing to hip hop it's just mad to look at it now and think that there were morons who worked for Absolutely. record companies that didn't and see it. it it kind of carries on that narrative carries on because it, it still took him because he was basically seen as a producer mm. who and they did they weren't interested in hearing him rap that's basically what it was because he didn't fall into the gangster criteria they they weren't going to have that because that's what Rockefeller do do you know what I mean and they put their money behind. They, I mean, they showed some other guys that they put their money behind before Kanye. And you just think, man, what, do you actually know what you're yeah. doing, Damon? Come on. This is like Mr. Dash. You need a reality check. Yeah. So anyway, he, you know, he just keeps going. He keeps knocking on that door and he keeps making this music. And eventually it comes good. And I'm really pleased for him. And I'm really pleased for his mum, who, like I say, is just delightful. And then the, the last one's just a heartbreaker. So I really recommend it. It is incredibly long again. I think you're doing it the right way. 45 minutes here, 45 minutes there. You'll get there eventually. It's very dense as well. I mean, Cootie yeah. has so much footage and each bit of footage is very intentional. It's mm. not like it's just superfluous stuff. It all plays into the narrative and is stuffed at like you see people saying to him or you see things he's saying in the past. And yeah. it, you can see that it's just really intricately, you know, all part of this really interesting storyline. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely give it a, a big thumbs up. It is well worth your time uh, if you have that much time. I don't know who does, but if you do, give it a go, Kanye West genius. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. As you'll know, we love a music documentary here at What Goes Around, so it's a real honour to have one of the best filmmakers in the business sharing his phonographic memories with us today. Sight and Sound have called him one of the great uncompromising poets of television, and he's made over 100 films, including Bird on a Wire, created on tour with Leonard Cohen, Frank Zappa's notorious 200 motels, and the celebrated pop music doc series All You Need Is Love, along with films about everyone from Maria Callas to Hugh Hefner to Peter Sellers. 
and uh, not to mention a seven-hour, 45-minute film on Wagner, starring Richard Burton, Laurence Olivier and Vanessa Redgrave, which was described by the LA Times as one of the most beautiful films ever made. He's received countless awards for his work, including BAFTAs, Emmys and 14 gold medals from the New York Film Festival. He's also presented a Sony award-winning radio show for BBC Radio 3, written many books, including a biography of Julian Bream, been a music critic for The Observer and has directed theatre and opera all across the world. Welcome to the podcast, Tony Palmer. Good morning, good morning, or good day, or good afternoon, whatever it is. <laughs> it's such yeah, a pleasure. I hope you didn't believe most of what you've just said. <laughs> that, that's the trick. I made it sound convincing now, right? So now you have to well, play up know, to it. I don't know. Who, who did I pay to make you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Like I say, it was almost impossible to keep it as succinct as it was. It's, it's such a pleasure and also quite an intimidating prospect to be speaking to you today. But thank oh, you for come being on, here. Come on. So I got in touch with you after I went to see a, a, like a pretty rare screening of the Leonard Cohen film Bird on a Wire at the JW3. And you got up before the film was shown and you told this amazing story about how the film sort of came to be and your experiences on the road with Leonard Cohen. Um, I guess, can you talk to us a little bit about that film in particular and also some of the films that you, you made around that era and the level of intimacy that you got with your subjects? Well, I mean, in a way, making the film with Leonard Cohen was both a pleasure and also a diversion. Because when I left university and joined the BBC, uh, I thought I was going to make films about classical music, which mm. eventually I did. But I kind of got seduced by rock and roll because I did have a lot of friends there. Um, whatever I say is going to sound name dropping. But I mean, one of my best friends at that time was some bloke called Lennon. And mm -hmm. uh, he tried to persuade me after I joined the BBC to make initially a film which included many great musicians who he said either didn't want to appear on the BBC because it was Top of the Pops mm. or what, what was it called? Jukebox Jury um, mm. or weren't ever asked. And so I said, well, like who? So he made a list and I said, well, I know some of these people, um, not personally, but for example, one of the groups he mentioned was Pink Floyd. Now it so happens I was at uh, school with Roger Waters. Mm. So I had an introduction there. Uh, and he said, well, I'll, I'll introduce you, uh, but you must make the film. So the list included um, Frank Zappa, who you've already mentioned, um, The Who, uh, Eric Burden, um, uh, who else? Cream, most importantly, Cream, and, and Jimi Hendrix. And he said, he, gave, he always quoted Jimi Hendrix as a perfect example. He said, you know, you had to understand and appreciate Jimi Hendrix, you had to realize that this was an extraordinary musician and an extraordinary man. And for mm -hmm. him to appear on television beyond the gyrating newbiles, I mean, nobody's against gyrating newbiles, <laughs> but if that's what the camera is focused on, and somewhere over there, several miles away, is Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. That's an insult to him as a man and a musician. Mm -hmm. So I said, fine, I'll do it. So eventually we made a film called All My Loving which uh, caused a terrible row at the BBC. The BBC didn't want to show it. They absolutely hated it. Uh, but eventually it was shown. Uh, and all of those people that I've just mentioned finally got on television. Anyway, as a result of that, of course, I was inundated with offers to make films about popular music of one kind or another. And you already mentioned All You Need Is Love. Um, and that was my attempt about eight years later, literally to draw a line in the sand.
I forgot, of course, that the tide comes in and goes out, <laughs> thus erasing any line in the sand. But that was an attempt just to sum up what I felt about popular music. And as I said, it had been a diversion away from making films about classical music. And one of the things, one of the offers that came along uh, was um, from Leonard Cohen, who, oddly enough, I had met backstage at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970, that only to say hello to, and that was all. Anyway, I was summoned to New York uh, to discuss a project. And the project turned out to be uh, his European tour of 1972. And what he didn't know, but the manager told me, was that the record company then, it's incredible when you think about it, that his record company was not going to renew his contract because his records didn't sell. <laughs> and Leonard had already told the manager that he hated touring. He, he was not a parrot, just turning up, you know, whatever venue and singing songs yet again mm -hmm. about whatever it was. So the manager uh, uh, was desperate to have something because, of course, if you were the manager of a, any kind of pop group uh, in the early 70s and you'd got an artist who didn't want to tour and didn't have a record uh, contract, you were sunk, basically. Mm. So I agreed to make the tour. Leonard made various... Um, uh, demands. I think they, they, if I say they were demands, I think they were in the back of his mind. Firstly, that I didn't make a film about someone who just sang sentimental love songs about Marianne or Suzanne. Mm. He didn't want a film about a tour, which was odd when you think about it, because we were going to film during <laughs> the tour. Mm. And the most important thing of all was that he wanted to stress that most of his poems were, did have a political with a small p edge. They weren't mm. They was about something, in other words, about him or about his society and the world in which he lived. So we agreed to make the film. None of those uh, uh, demands, requests were in any way difficult for me because I would have done that anyway. Mm. And we got on like a house on fire. I mean, we had a wonderful time, made, a, a, I thought, a rather jolly film. And one of the reasons we had the access we did was that there was nobody there. His manager was there, but no management, if you mm. see what I mean. Mm. There weren't 16 PR people telling him <laughs> what to say and me what to think. No record, those dreadful record executive people who kind of <laughs> loiter and all. Um, so we had total access to him, and that was the only condition that I had made, that whatever happens, we will be there with the camera. Now, we didn't have the advantage of these wonderful miniature digital cameras that, uh, you know, were film in pitch black. You know, this was celluloid, 16 millimeter, color, very slow exposure, therefore lots of light. So in that sense, it was difficult. But we made the film. Mm. He looked mm. at the film and uh, he, I don't think he, well, he didn't commit himself either liking or disliking, but he was worried that it was, and I use his word, confrontational. Mm. And I never figured out for years exactly what he meant. Until, oddly enough, and you mentioned it again, until I worked uh, with Richard Burton, and I realized that Richard Burton never, ever wanted to see himself on the screen. <laughs> he said, well, you know, my nose is bog-eyed and my lip, my eyes are not central. I've pockmarked my head, <laughs> and so on and so on. Never want to see himself on the screen. And I think what happened with Leonard when he saw himself on the screen in Bird and Noir, he was shocked, shocked in the sense that, you know, this was a huge representation of him, 
And maybe that wasn't the image of himself that he had. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what he meant by confrontation. Mm -hmm. So I did an incredibly stupid thing. <laughs> I said, said, said to him, Leonard, you know, here's all the material. You know, we'd got on so well. Here's all the material. Um, you know, uh, if you want to make some modifications, make some modifications. I'll see you in a couple of weeks or so, and we'll discuss the differences, and, and um, I'm sure we'll find a, a compromise. <laughs> now, I know the value of money has changed, um, but the filming took, in broad terms, broad brushstrokes, the filming took about four weeks. I'm my own editor, and that took about another three weeks, so that's seven weeks in total, and I think we'd spent about $30,000. Dollars, US dollars. Two years later, <laughs> he came back with version two, which uh, he had to pay for because the manager refused to get involved. Uh, and he spent something like well over a quarter of a million dollars of his own money coming up with the second version, which he absolutely hated. I mean, he told me he hated <laughs> So, you know, what a waste. So then the film, quotes, disappeared, unquotes. I'm sure he knew where it was, but he, he wasn't going to let on. I think he was just embarrassed by the whole thing. So he mm. shoved all the material in the warehouse. And although he didn't forget it, he, he chose not to remember it, if you see what I mean. The manager of uh, Frank Zappa, uh, 200 Motels, Frank Zappa, now dead, of course. Uh, we're talking about 2008 now. So, I mean, it's 30-some-odd years later uh, than the first part of the story I told you. Um, the manager was a wonderful man called Herb Cohen. He called me and he said uh, he'd got all the rights to 200 motels back now. And, you know, would, would I like to have another go to try and sort, sort, make something coherent, was how he put it. So I said, <laughs> well, why not? So he, off he went to the, the warehouse where the uh, 200 motels material was kept. And he rang me and said, whispering almost down the phone, he said, well, I found the Zappa material, no problem. I, I can see in front of me 28 enormous boxes labelled Bird and a Wire. I'm sure it's not the Goldie Horn film because the, these, boxes are in these boxes are in terrible condition. So I said, send them over. So I got really excited. And when, when they arrived, I realised they weren't, in fact, uh, the film. They were all the material that we had not used. Anyway, yeah. by now it became a kind of challenge. And gradually, slowly piecing like a huge jigsaw puzzle, actually. I pieced back together again version one. And whereas originally it had taken me about three weeks to edit, this took, I think, seven and a half months of trying to put it back together again. We then released the film on DVD in 2010, I think. Yes, 2010. And it sold incredibly well. But then when Leonard died, the estate, for reasons that nobody's ever been able to fathom, said they were going to make their own version of Bird on a Wire. We're still waiting. Again. <laughs> um, Again. And therefore, we can't promote or release any further copies of the version that I had done. Is that why it's not online? Yep, that oh. is correct. Because they are making their own version. Meanwhile, I get furious emails from all kinds of people, including person who's responsible for uh, the biannual uh, Leonard Cohen fest. Yeah, yeah don't mess with, don't mess it, with the it, super fans. We know, we know all about that. I know, it went a bit blank. You're perfectly safe, don't worry. Yeah, okay. The upshot of it all is we're still waiting for uh, the official version of Bird and the Wire. Meanwhile, they've stopped us releasing or 
or, or onlining at all. I mean, and they, they did get quite vicious about it. Mm. Uh, so, as I said, uh, the, the people who run the biannual intergalactic Leonard Cohen <laughs> fan club, <laughs> I mean, they meet every two years in some remote part of the world, probably be Belarus next year. <laughs> they um, very upset and they said, you know, we want to show the film. We love showing yeah. the film. And every time we do show it, it has uh, extraordinary good luckily and favorable reaction i think it portrayed portrays lenin in a in a very very sympathetic way there was a very the very funny story finally before i stop rambling on about <laughs> that but um it he being canadian of course we had the world premiere and he was very much still alive then in toronto and i notified him and told him at the toronto film festival and you know please come it would be wonderful if you came uh he didn't Toronto Film Festival offered to fly me out to introduce the film, so I fine. So about three or four days before I was due to depart, they rang me again and said, well, the, the thing, I mean, an enormous cinema holding about a couple of thousand people. Um, and they rang and said, it's completely sold out. Could we have a second screening? I said, sure. I mean, if you, if you think it's worth it, by all means. So I go to the first screening. I make my introduction. And then I turn up on the second evening for the second screening, and I'm just loitering in the in the um, foyer of the cinema. And this woman came up to me, and she jabbed me in the solar plexus. I mean, it really hurt me. And she said, "You," he said, "You, you, you ruined my love of Leonard Cohen." I said, "Oh, oh I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> what, what did I do? What did I, you ruined my love of Leonard Cohen." She said. I said, "Fine, fine, fine. I, I can't do much about it now, but please tell me what 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 I've done wrong." And she said, well, she said, I came to see your film last night. I said, oh, oh dear. And she said, no, 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 the film is wonderful. Um, and But, she said, the performances in it of Suzanne, Marianne, and so on and so on, all, all the great songs, mm. um, including Bird and the Wire, she said, those performances are so wonderful and so heartfelt. I went back and I got out my LPs, I suppose they would have been original LPs, and those performances are dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> no pleasing some people. So I felt I felt justified in the whole thing. Anyway, that's Bird in the Wire. So that's why you can't get it, because they're doing their version. It's, we live in, in, in a tremendous anticipation of this. Yeah. Absolutely. It's clear that um, the whole documentary-making process has come such a long way now, and it seems like those early films that you were working on had the great advantage of perhaps the subjects not really knowing what a documentary can do. I watched, uh, watched Get Back by the Beatles and there was definitely moments where you just thought, how on earth did, did they get away with this kind of access? And, and it's obvious that the people involved just don't have the kind of understanding of, of that we do today because now we've got reality TV and like you say, all the tiny cameras and all that. The access that you got in films like Bird and the Wire have you felt that harder to get as time's gone on? Well, the Beatles are exception to anything, and of course they knew what was going on. Uh, and they are the ultimate manipulators um, of their material. And, I mean, I filmed uh, uh, them for this film, All My Loving, because it was John's idea. And then when we came to make All You Need Is Love, that was in a sense also his idea, because I remember... Uh, I can't remember. I'd, I'd love to say I was walking up Fifth Avenue in New York. I was in New York, but whether it was Fifth Avenue, God knows. Mm -hmm. Anyway, coming the other way was a certain Mr. Lennon, who lived in New York then. Of course, we're talking about the early 70s now. 
And he stopped and he burst out laughing and I burst out laughing, a lot of giggles. So then it was lunch. Now, lunch with John, of course, consisted of brown rice for the first course, brown rice the main course, and brown <laughs> rice definitely for the dessert. And during the course of this lunch, jolly lunch, it was a very nice lunch. It was good to see him anyway in New York. He made a very interesting point, which was that at that time, I mean, it's so long ago, both of you are far too young to remember. At that time, the beginning of the 70s, it was very fashionable in television circles to do these huge 13-part series. There's the mm -hmm. famous one, of course, was Civilization with Kenneth Clark. Mm -hmm. Um, then there's a, a one called America with Alistair Cook. Um, yeah, there great. was The Ascent of Man with Bronowski and the very first Attenborough, big, David Attenborough big series. And John said, well, you know, one of the most important uh, cultural influences of the 20th century, certainly in the United States, is the development of popular music. Why don't we do the equivalent 13-part series? Why don't we do this big 13-part series about history of popular music. And of course, that was a wonderful insight and a very good idea, a very important idea. So we made a list. Well, what is ragtime? Where does it come from? Who were its proponents? What's swing? What's jazz? What's blues? And so on and so on and so on. And uh, so then he had to go. So he, he got, I got to the door of this tiny little, it was a cafe rather than a restaurant. And he turned around and said, I've got the perfect title for you. I said, what's that? He said, call it All You Need Is Love. I said, now hang on, there's some group that I've heard of. Didn't they do a song by that name? <laughs> so he laughed and he said, I'll send you a note giving you permission, which indeed he did eventually. <laughs> the American distributor absolutely insisted that we did a title check. You know, are you sure that you can use this title? So we said, I said, yes. And he said, well, I'd still like you to do a title search. We did. We found out something very, very interesting in spite of John's note. First was that the Beatles themselves had never copyrighted or trademarked that title, All You Need Is Love. But two people had. One mm. was a brothel in Amsterdam. <laughs> and the other was, uh, let me think, uh, the, oh, yeah, the other was a maker of very uh, risque lingerie for young ladies in Hong Kong. So uh, we said to the lawyer, this is all there is. So he said, well, I suppose we could make an exception. Okay, what was the question? I I can't, well, <laughs> just uh, the access that you can get and the... the oh, the, the access, how... yes. Sorry, you're absolutely right to bring me back to the straight and narrow. That was the, the extraordinary thing. When, when the, 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 the distance between making this list, ragtime, blues, jazz, it's, that, that's fun. That takes two minutes. Then having to track all these people down uh, mm. and get them to be interviewed and get them to talk. Because don't forget, when we were doing this, it was in 1975, nobody had ever done that. Now there's mm. a proliferation of such documentaries. Mm. Uh, but at that point, uh, and many of those documentaries, I'm sorry to say, are controlled by the thought police uh, mm. uh, ways that we talked about earlier. But then, of course, you know, people, they were astonished that we turned up. I remember turning up at Bing Crosby's house. And I said, you surely must have talked about, you know, swing and your involvement in it before. He said, no, nobody's ever asked me. Wow. I thought, oh, wow. this is extraordinary, unbelievable. <laughs> but I thought the really important thing about that series, again, it's almost impossible to think back and realize that this was the case. We couldn't find muddy waters for example, anywhere. Mm. I knew who Muddy Waters was. He didn't have a manager. He didn't have a record contract, nothing. So it was untraceable. And one time we were in Chicago and um, doing something else. 
And my assistant noticed in the small ads in the Chicago Herald Tribune a concert by or a gig by uh, Muddy Waters at such and such a sure. club. So she was put on her bike immediately and sent off. And, and she got <laughs> him on the phone with me. Now, I was still in the hotel. And I said to her, I tried to explain what we were doing in the history of popular music and how important a figure he was. And he just listened and he said, gee, come on down. He said, I said, fine. So we went down and while it would not be true to say there were more people in the crew than there were in the audience, that's not too far an exaggeration. Wow. How does that uh, happen? And he <laughs> said, I, I would have happily settled for just one, one number, but he insisted that I filmed the entire gig. Because wow. um, there was nobody there. And so why would we not? And he made a wonderful remark, I remember, in the interview afterwards. Uh, he was very circumspect about what his influence really was. But at one point, he just looked at me and he grinned. He said, you know, you know those guys, the Stones? And I said, yes. He said, I made them a millionaire, but they <laughs> gave me a name. And I thought that was a wonderful right. illustration of what you're saying. Yeah. And Jerry Lee Lewis, we couldn't find anywhere. We eventually tracked him down. He was on a on a tiny little stage opposite the check-in desk at a Holiday Inn. I was going to say, was he not it? hiding out somewhere? No, no, <laughs> whatever no, indiscretion he'd committed. No, no. I mean, they were these people had been completely forgotten. Yeah. And I think if if uh, All You Need Is Love the series had any merit at all, it was to bring these people back to the public. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, the, the general public. And since then, as I said, I'm not saying because of all you need is love, but I think it was instrumental in causing a sudden realization by these morons who run television companies that there really was a huge catalogue here of music that mm. deserved to be heard and deserved to be heard properly. Mm. But it is interesting listening to that because obviously nowadays, you know, we're all so spoiled because if I want to do a documentary about X, Y and Z, I just, you know, open the laptop, crack onto Google and start sending emails. But it must have been a very physical thing going around and finding these people and talking to them. I mean, there's a lot of actual hard miles and letter writing and phone calls and all that stuff. Well, I mean, letter writing would have got us nowhere, but I mean, phone calls definitely, because this was before email mm. um, and before all the various other forms of social media that you can get in touch with people. And I mean, we, we I can't remember how we did it, but the box set uh, has just been re-released on a, hu a huge deluxe version with a big brochure uh, written by me. Uh, as well as the book, because the big book came out of it, as well as all the original films, as well as lots of music that we recorded that we didn't use, etc., etc., etc. Big, big, beautiful box set called All You Need Is Love. In it, we published, we republished a facsimile of my diary of that period. <laughs> and when you look at it, you simply can't believe that I did what we did. I mean, we were doing three different people, um, often in three different cities, in the United States on the same day. Wow. So you wow. look at the diary and it says, uh, you know, Roy Rogers in the morning, um, in, you know, pop along Cassidy and all that, Roy Rogers, then the afternoon, for sake of argument, Jerry Lee Lewis, and in the evening, Muddy Waters, all <laughs> on the same day, but all in different <laughs> cities. Mm. We were just jumping on and off planes like maniacs. <laughs> uh, and we had, we had a tiny crew, there was only, I think, five altogether, including the bloke who, I think we practically killed him um he he was in charge of of humping the equipment let's call it that because again <laughs> don't forget this was 16 millimeter film 
Mm. Not little digital cameras which you can record in the way that you know you know how digital stuff is recorded. This was celluloid all the time, which had to be packed and then unpacked and then exposed and then packed again. And then we had to ship it um, somewhere so that it could be processed to make sure we'd actually got something. It was appalling mishmash. Again, how we did it, I have absolutely no idea. But I know we did. It's amazing with all of that physical stuff you're humping around. Some of the... It's just, you know, going back to what Eamon was saying about the intimacy. I mean, there are moments in Birds on a Wire where, you know, like there's the moment where like Leonard Cohen is trying to get a date with some girl and obviously it's being filmed. We watch his whole technique play out (laughs) in front of the camera. It's amazing. And again, you know, tying into what you're saying about how much things have changed, I suppose it must have been so startling for someone like Leonard Cohen to see the film and be, maybe that's what he meant by confrontational you know to be confronted by how other people's perspective on him how the world sees him that's something that I think with people's carefully curated social media profiles you know it's so much a part of the PR of contemporary artists whereas someone like Leonard Cohen at that time probably never had to really be faced with what other people's how he looked to the outside world I think that's absolutely true Deb but I think the other aspect I don't wish to row my own boat particularly but, um, you know, it's a question of trust. Once mm. they trust you, um, then the world's your oyster, really. God, that's mixing up metaphors. Um, but I mean, <laughs> that was why we, I always got along very well with, uh, with uh, John Lennon and, yes. and the others uh, of that group whose name I can't remember. Um, <laughs> it's simply that, um, uh, well, as actually Paul said to me once, he said, you know, one of the reasons that I have agreed to do the second interview, which he did, which was for All You Need Is Love, where he talked about uh, the demise of Apple. I mean, Apple the, Apple the institution, not Apple the, um, mm. the record label, you know, where they were, they were frittering away money on any crank who came through the door. Um, and it was simply that, you know, I was one of the first journalists they'd talked to who could speak in joined-up language. You know, they weren't used to that. Mm. That was uh, one aspect of being trusted. And also it was absolutely clear, as I, as I mentioned when talking about Jimi Hendrix, who I also got to know very, very well. You know, I took them seriously as musicians and I took them very seriously as people. They were mm. fascinating people who had a lot to say and wanted to say it and nobody had given that opportunity. Yeah. 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 I'm glad we're all glad you've done it. That's yeah. the main thing. I mean, obviously it set the template for yeah. you know, m- many future documentaries if not the way that we look at, at pop and rock artists in general. I I'm so <laughs> really it's so tempting to go down the rabbit hole of asking you to talk more about your friendships yeah. with these people. <laughs> I was about to shout, <laughs> ask him about his choices. I was <laughs> so tempted, but we 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 should really get into your photographic memories because I'm really curious about the music that, that you know well we're really curious about the music that you're attached to personally as well and the first track that you've chosen is uh, a nice uh, psyche one a group called the collection with violet Dew. Mm-hmm. what can you tell us about your connection to this one well the connection there is is uh, very straightforward actually um again it's a terrible name dropping story I, forgive me for that but one of the people that i did a television uh, i mean think about this on Friday evenings on BBC One at six o'clock, we had for uh, a, a quite a lengthy period an arts programme. You know, I mean, that's how the world has changed. Six o'clock, BBC One, 
networked and arts programme. Can you can you Sounds believe great. it? Sounds <laughs> great. I wish yeah. it was still yeah, that way. More, more of that, please. <laughs> anyway, one of the people that uh, we used a lot in that uh, was John Peel. And John was always sort of saying to me, you've got to listen to this group, you've got to listen to that group. And he uh, uh, alerted me to this group, a collection. Uh, and to be honest, I'd never heard of them, uh, but I think he'd just been sent uh, the um, uh, LP. Or, yes, it would have been an LP then. Uh, and I completely fell in love with the sound. And rather more importantly, I completely fell in love with the lady singer, who was called yeah. Perry Limale, who was really wonderful, wonderful woman. Then she left. She was sick of the music business. Um, uh, I, she never would tell me quite why she was sick of it, except I think she felt she was just being exploited. Mm. Interesting mm. that, isn't it? In 1968, she was, felt she was being exploited. Mm. Um, so she quit and she went back to Australia. I'd lost touch with her for a long, long time. And quite out of the blue, about 20 years later, so this is turn of this century, um, uh, I was written to by somebody who said he he thinks he knows where Carolee Marley is and she's living in a hostel for the homeless. Mm. No. So I wrote immediately, but I didn't get a reply. So I don't know whether that's true or not. But I mean, she was she was tiny. She was very beautiful. She was very funny and she sang like an angel. I was just going to say, it's a wonderful thing. I've, I've got a real soft spot for that type of sort of 60s psychedelia. And uh, yeah. it's it's a really, really beautiful piece. I'm, I'm kind of surprised I hadn't heard of it before, but I'll definitely be searching out that album. Well, I mean, some, some of the other people, uh, um, the bass player was Trevor Lucas, who went off and did various things with um, Pen, Pentangle, was it? Mm. Mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah. Uh, all of the, the uh, and um, and of course Fairport Convention, they they all gravit yeah. everybody gravitated always towards Fairport Convention. Mm. Michael Rosen, who was also a singer, but um, he was played the acoustic guitar. And uh, Jerry Conway was on drums, and I think he had a spell with um, Fairport Convention. Oh, yeah. They all did. I'm waiting for that English folk pentangle Fairport Convention revival. I'm just waiting for that yeah. to become invoked. Maybe that's something you could instigate. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd love to because I mean, um, 
Richard Thompson, um, I mean, they were a remarkable group of, of musicians. Uh, mm -hmm. They lived in a kind of derelict barn somewhere, somewhere up the M1, or A1, <laughs> somewhere up the A1. I mean, it was a real kind of horrible hangout <laughs> that they were inhabiting. And of course, there, were, there was Sandy Denny. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, I come from Banbury, where I grew up in Banbury, oh, near, right. near Cropperdy. So they are part of the furniture down there. And it, yeah. um, that festival in particular has just been uh, a real stalwart feature on, on cultural life in that area for as long as I yeah. can remember. The reason I chose Violet Dew was what yeah. brings back so many memories of Kerry Lee Marley for me. Mm. Um, I won't go into specifics. Mm. Um, but uh, and also it's a beautiful song I agree yeah um I'm curious you, you mentioned before you started making rock and roll documentaries that you uh, it was a diversion you said from going on to make films about classical music which is what you later went on to do um what's your background with classical music and when you were you sort of a novice to, to rock music when you started making films about well not entirely um I mean I the very first film I ever made uh, who became extremely important in my life, uh, was a film about Benjamin Britten. Mm. And I inherited that film because the guy who was going to do it was my boss, mm. a man, a very, very distinguished man called Humphrey Burton. Actually, now he's Sir Humphrey. We have to call him Sir <laughs> Humphrey. Uh, not that Sir Humphrey, but another Sir Humphrey. <laughs> anyway, I mean, he really in, invented music on television. And he was, a, he was a, the star pupil of the guy who was then the, the, in effect, the boss of BBC television, a man called Hugh Weldon. And the BBC had tried for years to, to persuade Benjamin Britten to allow a film to be made about him. Mm. And um, Monitor, which was uh, by repute, you know, the, the, the progenitor of everything mm. to do with the arts on television, had made a short film, I think 10 or 11 minutes along, 10 or 11 minutes long. Uh, directed by John Schlesinger, who, after all, is no slouch as a director. Mm. Uh, and Britain, for whatever reason, had absolutely hated it. Um, mm. And that was made, I think, in 1959. And although Britain would, would, didn't mind being uh, filmed conducting or playing the piano or giving a recital, he would not allow anybody to get close to him to make a film about him. Uh, and so eventually with the opening of a big new concert hall in Albury in Suffolk uh, called Snape. Still, well, it was then still one of the great concert halls of the world. Uh, it was pointed out to Britain that this was going to be a state occasion. The Queen was coming. Um, you know, every, everybody you've ever heard of was going to be there for, for Britain's sake, really. I mean, for Benjamin Britain's sake. So surely, on a state occasion, he couldn't resist the temptation to have a film setting this wonderful concert hall in some kind of context. So he agreed. Mm. And painfully, therefore, after seven years, the BBC uh, was, was uh, commissioned to make this film. The Thursday before we were due to start filming the following Monday, uh, I'm now sitting in Albra, looking at the sea, thinking wonderful thoughts. What an, I was the tea boy. I mean, <laughs> literally the tea boy. My job was to hunt the bloody equipment around the place. Uh, and um, Thursday, and then those days, this hotel I was sitting in now is a very smart Shiji hotel. But then it was it was very comfortable, but primitive. There were no phones in the room, if you see what mm -hmm. I mean. So, a Thursday or so, 
uh, knock, knock, knock on the door. The manager came up and said, there's a phone call for you. So I go downstairs and it's Humphrey Burton on the phone. He said, uh, I don't want you to panic, um, but I've just been fired. And it, I later discovered that the reason he'd been fired was um, that it had been leaked to the London Evening Standard that he and Frank Muir and one or two others were uh, quitting the BBC to set up the first London commercial station, which mm. was uh, London Weekend Television. And Hugh Weldon, the boss boss, was horrified by this. He thought this was an outrage. He'd been betrayed. So Humphrey Burton was told, clear your desk by two o'clock. Wow. Thing. So anyway, I thought, oh God, I go up and sit in the room. I'm now beginning to worry because I wonder what's going to happen. Knock, knock, knock on door. The phone call. I go down to the phone call and it's Hugh Weldon on the phone. I knew him. I knew him quite well, so I knew his voice. He said, Palmer! Don't forget, he was a very distinguished uh, military cross, um, uh, a very, had a very distinguished war career, military mm. cross, I think in Bar. I mean, he was, he was top notch. Anyway, mm. Palmer, <laughs> he said, the cavalry are coming. <laughs> I no idea what he meant by that. I just assumed he was coming. So I said, thank you, thank you. Um, put the phone down and go upstairs. Now I'm really sweating. And then uh, half an hour goes by, knock, knock, knock. No, I'm sorry, I really don't want to take any more phone calls. I've had quite enough shocks for one day, thank you very much. He said, manager said, I think they'll want to take this call. And I said, who is it? He said, it's Benjamin Britten. Oh, God. Oh, so I go downstairs, I'm now in a sweat. And again, I'd met Britton by this time and I'd got to know him a little, but not well. And he said, don't worry, he said, we've heard. Would you like to come up and have tea? So you don't resist going to have tea mm. with Benjamin Britton. So I shot up to the house, the red house. And I, I remember all kinds of strange things. Britton was pouring the tea Peter Pierce, his his lover and his, and his partner in every sense, had uh, produced this enormous great uh, fruit cake, and he was cutting this fruit cake all the time. I think feeding himself rather than me, because I mean I'm just shaking, you know. <laughs> and Britain finally said, you know, please don't worry, um, we will get you through it. You know, I didn't realise that I was going to be left with the whole thing. Anyway, I was left with the whole thing, and we made the film. And it wasn't too bad. It was, in fact, it was the first BBC film ever to be networked in America. Wow. And I remember mm. a, te oh, a terrible moment. It's just come back to me. A terrible moment where we had the first official screening. And Britton and Piers came. And I'm sitting um, between Britton and Piers, and Hugh Weldon is sitting behind me. That was it. Just we four. We happy mm. four. And uh, I mean, Britton was. He was quite right. I mean, I didn't have any real clue about what I was doing, and I wouldn't have got through it, because I'd never made a film before. I wouldn't have got through it without their help. Anyway, there was one moment where we had filmed a bit of the Ceremony of Carols, this wonderful um, song cycle he wrote for Children's Choir and a Harp. At the end of one particular number, the harp goes, broom, and the choir goes, da-da, and then the harp goes, broom. Da -da, broom, da -da, broom, da -da. Anyway, I hadn't filmed enough. Broom, da -da, broom, da -da. <laughs> so, I, so I thought, oh, it's simple. I'll just cut four of them out, you see. So I'm now sitting watching the film, and I'm now in a total panic because I realise it's coming. This is a celluloid, of course. It's coming towards the moment where I cut some of his music. Oh, dear. And I thought, God, what do I do? Do I turn and say, are you enjoying this, Mr. Britton? <laughs> or I cough loudly or something like that. 
Anyway, but I was in such a state about it that, it, of course, it went through without any comment. Mm. Now we're having lunch afterwards. Uh, those are the days, the BBC lunch. Uh, <laughs> and after the and Britain was really quite complimentary about the film. And then we go down to the, uh, the, the awaiting limo, and Peter Pierce sort of grabs me and kisses me and thanks him very much and come and see us in Auburn. I see Britain talking to Hugh Weldon. That's all going very well. And then Britain turns around, gives me a half smile and a big hug, gets and is getting into the car. And I, as far as I remember it, he got one foot inside the car. And then he just turned back and looked at me and he said, you know, I think it's actually better without those four bars. And in a way that said everything about him. I mean, just a very great musician, but also just a very nice, funny, interesting man. I mean, he was, he was a, a, a problem. I mean, like all great geniuses, you had to watch him carefully because they, they, could, they could change in a millisecond. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, it's a question of trust. Once they trusted you, that was it. Yeah, mm. what an amazing so, story. That, so that was the first film I made, and I thought from here on in, um, then I'm going to make this kind of film, this kind of documentary. Mm. Um, uh, and little did I know that Leonard Cohen would change the course of that. Yeah, yeah. fade out other ideas. Or John Lennon would change the course of that, to yeah. be absolutely precise. <laughs> Well, your next choice is by Judith Durham. Is this, this is the same Judith that was in The Seekers, is that right? Correct. Uh, tell us about this choice then. This, the well, carnival's uh, over. Carolee had a friend who was another Australian <laughs> who was called Judith Durham. Um, and one of the reasons I, I, I took a shine to Carolee, I would like to think that she took a shine to me, hmm. was quite simply that uh, she'd, she'd been parachuted into this group of collection and didn't know anybody in London. I mean, it, it was as simple as that. And John Peel, who who was discovering this group, said, you know, you've got to take her out, look after her, make sure she's all right. Uh, so I did. Anyway, and one of these times that we went out, she met, I met this other Australian who was called Judith Durham. And I, uh, although I didn't quite fall in love with Judith Durham, I thought her voice, uh, it reminded me of Curly's voice, actually, was just angelic and I just thought that's a perfect perfect sound that's what a singer should be like say goodbye my own true lover as we sing a love song how it breaks my heart to leave you now the carnival is gone I above the dawn is waking and my tears are falling rain for the carnival is over we may enamoured of really beautiful voices um, and later in later on in my career when I got to know great Australian classical voices they kept reminding me uh, of of Judith Durham I mean I did get to know um, Jan Southern pretty well uh, the, the great Australian uh, 
soprano, coloratura soprano of her age. And I'm still in touch with, with I mean, she's dead, sadly, but I'm still in touch with her 92-year-old husband, uh, <laughs> who's a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and um, anyway, so that was how I, I, I met Judith. And then, you know, I went, I think they took me to a couple of concerts. I think I actually went with Kelly, actually. Um, of the Seekers, and I, as I said, I thought they were very professional, but I thought Judith Durham, was, her voice was just out of this world. And I watched a, a, a recent uh, performance from her, of her singing this song, actually, and her voice uh, pretty much sounds exactly the same. Ah, I did, uh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Because, I mean, um, she had, I think I'm right in saying that she had rather bad heart problems uh, at mm -hmm. some point in her life and that rather knocked her career off, off track. Um, yeah, I think she had, a, she had a hemorrhage on stage, I believe. I think the, she uh, did, yes, yeah. I think she did. Um, but, and I'm delighted to hear that her, her voice has not been affected because, I mean, I, uh, she's, no, she's heaven. Well, we all know the final choice of yours, uh, Moonlight Shadow by Maggie Riley. This song has been kind of like in the ether for the last 20 years. It, it constantly pops up when I'm least expecting to hear it. And uh, tell us why this particular track rings true with you. Well, I mean, it's by Mike Oldfield, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, Mike and I, uh, as they say, go way back <laughs> um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, one, uh, I did help a bit when uh, Richard Branson was uh, penniless and trying to get off the ground uh, with various mad schemes, um, one of which was a record company, because nobody else would uh, do anything about this uh, extraordinary track uh, he had. Uh, I mean, tape, it was a tape, um, uh, um, Tubular Bells. Oh, and he played mm -hmm. me Tubular Bells and said, and long before, I mean, he got as far as a record company, and they said, I said, what did I think? What did I think? And I said, it's absolutely amazing. I, what's the band? And he said, it's one person. I said, come on, can't possibly Crazy. He said, yes, one person. Anyway, uh, cutting long story short, I mean, I, I then, in All You Need Is Love, we're going back to that, um, because I had uh, raved about Tubular Bells and then about Herges Ridge, the second one, um, uh, Mike agreed to be interviewed. Now, he was monosyllabic on a good day, uh, but I did get quite an interesting interview with him, and I filmed him in his studio in Herges Ridge, um, and that's how All You Need Is Love episode 17 finishes, with 10 minutes of Mike Oldfield, and for a long, long time, that was the only uh, interview with Mike Oldfield. Now, in 1977, uh, I, I'm not digressing particularly but in 1977 I was suddenly absolutely out of the blue approached by NASA the space lot and said this you know, they, were, they, they were looking they were looking for a, a film to celebrate uh, the 10th anniversary of landing on the moon for 1979 and I kept thinking why are they asking me <laughs> they can't possibly ever have heard of me it turns out that one of the PR people had seen uh, all You Need Is Love when it was on American television. And they thought, well, we've got all this material um, that we've filmed. I mean, the, all the great iconic shots, which you know backwards by now. 
um, mm. and um, we can get this man. He, he can maybe he can get Frank Zappa to sing "Fly Me to the Moon" <laughs> soundtrack. You see, and that will help sellers um, or sell the idea of of the tenth anniversary. So they didn't. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that for years and years and years later. Anyway, I was. They flew me over to Washington, and they showed me a selection of material that they had, and my, my jaw just not and fell off. It, I mean, it fell through the ground and several stories below. All the great shots that you know now that we've seen mm -hmm. so many, so many times. But at that point, nineteen end of nineteen seventy-seven, nobody had ever seen. Uh, so I said, yes, 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 please, yes, please. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I kept thinking, now, what music could I use? So I just happened to mention this one day to uh, Richard Branson, who said, why didn't you ask Mike? So I said, fine. So I went down and I saw Mike, and he loved the idea. He thought, yes, it's something he could definitely do, because, I mean, Richard wanted to get him into films, as they say. Mm. And, of course, he did provide... Uh, as some soundtrack for was it the Exorcist, yes, the Exorcist. Mm. Anyway, um, but of course, tenth anniversary means there's a deadline, so I kept ringing Mike and saying, "How are you getting on? Wonderful, no problem at all." Blah blah blah, um, and uh, so he eventually got to kind of January of, of 1979, and I, I said, "Mike, I'd really love to hear what you've done." So he said, "Come down, come down." So I went by now. He was living in Gloucestershire, I think. And he played me eight minutes, which absolutely wonderful music. So I looked at him and I said, uh, that's fine. Where's the other 80 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> so there was oh. a, a deathly pause. Anyway, with Mike's permission uh, and with Richard Branson's encouragement, I think it was actually Mike's idea. What he did was he, they'd recorded an orchestral version of Tubular Bells, an orchestral version of Herges Ridge, that they'd never released them at that point. And then he'd got another album which he'd been working on for a long time, but again hadn't been released, eventually became Incantations, plus the eight minutes that he'd done. So we managed to cobble this together with his approval. I mean, he mm -hmm. heard what I did um, before the film was released. And so he wrote the soundtrack for a film that became known as The Space Movie, which everybody has copied ever since. Uh, I mean, both the use of the music and also the style of the film. Uh, the only thing that NASA f would not give us permission to do, we were not allowed to interview any of the um, uh, any of the astronauts because that was their policy at that time. But they did give me uh, all of the uh, or access to all of the chit chat between ground control and the and Apollo 11 as it rocketed away to the moon. And there's some wonderful, wonderful remarks. And at one point, you hear Buzz Aldrin saying. A bit of shaking there, and you're looking at this enormous <laughs> ship, <laughs> shuddering. It goes off. Then another point you hear. I think it's. I think this is Neil Armstrong actually, who says, um, "Such and such and such and such and such and such. They've all gone to zero. <laughs> oh <my God>. uh -oh. <laughs> and, and then you hear Houston saying, "Noted. All your blah, 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 all gone to zero." And then Buzz chips in straight away, and he says. I think we were struck by lightning. Long pause, and then he says, "We'd better have some all-weather testing in the future." Oh, <laughs> Completely wow. mad. Uh, Strapped to, a, to, to a giant bomb yeah. of and fuel. The, the reason I the, the reason I, I discovered about what how, why they chosen me was, I think on the fortieth anniversary, they had a big gala screening of the film organized by NASA in Hollywood, 
and Buzz Aldrin came to introduce it. And he made a long, very nice speech, um, mostly about him, but he did mention the film. And he did say uh, that, you know, the reason that they'd chosen me was because they needed, a, 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 they, they felt they needed a pop music soundtrack. Because mm. at that point, NASA had developed the shuttle, but it still was kind of, it wasn't launched in, in a real sense. And they were having terrible trouble with Congress uh, because Congress would not vote them the money to get the shuttle literally off the ground, if you see what I mean. Mm. So that was why, in retrospect, I could see I had, they had one screening when the film was finished in 1979 in the White House, which I went to. And there I met President Carter, which was very moving, except I never understood a word he said because he spoke in this <laughs> vast, hugely corrupt um, Georgian accent. And yeah, it's anyway, droll. it was very yeah. nice. But that was why they commissioned it, and that's why they'd made the film. That's my background wow. and my relationship with Mike. And I mean, we're still great friends. The reason I chose my Moonlight Shadow is that it's an almost perfect song. In fact, I would want to say it is the perfect song. <laughs> it's an endless stream of melody um, that you, you're not aware that there's a first verse, second verse, third verse or whatever. Uh, it has at the end, um, brief, uh, far too brief it seems to me, um, but a little outburst from Mike on his guitar. And that in itself is, is worth uh, celebrating. You know, here's a wonderful moment of just pure not only dexterity, but pure invention, which comes out of the melody of the song, which then reverts again. It's, it's a perfect, perfect song. I love the fact that we've finally had someone on the on the podcast whose reason for liking a song is to do with NASA contacting them. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't get more official than that. Yeah. That's, no, it that's out of really. this world. Um, I, well, I mean, the only the only good thing, uh, sorry to interrupt, the only good thing that came as far as I was concerned was when we went to that uh, 40th anniversary screening, um, there was a lunch, oh, no, supper, sorry, after the screening with uh, um, Buzz Aldrin. And of course, I'm desperate to say, you know, what, did, what does it really feel like? You're standing mm -hmm. on the moon looking back at the Earth. But I thought, I kept thinking, well, he must have been asked this question a thousand mm -hmm. times. And so I'm not going to do it. Now, one of the guys who was at the uh, dinner uh, had a, a, a Blackberry. Do you remember the Blackberries? Those oh, yeah. Those sort of yeah. rather primitive iPhones. <laughs> 
anyway, and he was one of those guys who, you know, under the table was busy sending messages to all and sundry on receiving messages. So eventually, I literally, I kicked him under the table and I said, whispered rather loudly, I said, you're an absolute moron, you know, you're sitting in the presence of the second man on the moon and all you're doing is sending bloody emails. You know, <laughs> no, they weren't emails, whatever they were in those days. Text messages, I suppose. So uh, he he stopped and he put this uh, he put the blackberry uh, on the table, and Buzz looked at it, and he said, "You know, the funny thing is," he said, "on Apollo Eleven we had less computer power than that phone." Yeah. Oh, I thought, God. So. Uh, the door was open. I said, now then, bud, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Never miss your mark, documentary maker. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the funny... The, the, and, uh, and, uh, he, and I said, at some point, I said, you know, you must have been fairly fed up that, you know, you weren't going to be the first one down the ladder. And he said, well, until about a month before, I was going to be the first one down the ladder. And then uh, at the very last minute, we were swapped. And I said, yeah, that must have made you even more fed up. And he said, well, I didn't, I was, of course, momentarily fed up. But then I realized that, that Neil Armstrong was actually a much better pilot than me. Now, don't forget, these two were extremely distinguished fighter mm. pilot people who'd fought in the Korean War and they got more gold stars or whatever they were called. And it's possible to imagine. And, and I said, no, that can't be. He said, well, I'll give you an example. He said, we're coming into land on the moon. I think this is Buzz Aldrin telling me we're coming into land on the moon. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't have an iPhone, so I couldn't take a photograph, but I should have done. But anyway, coming into land on the moon. And we realized, we we're both looking out through the portholes, and we realized that where the com onboard computer, smaller than the BlackBerry, was taking us was full of very large boulders. So I didn't say anything. Neil didn't say anything. Neil leant forward and he turned the computer off. So he's now bringing it into land by hand, which is why on the soundtrack, and this was one of the uh, soundtracks that, that NASA gave us, you can hear him saying, uh, left two degrees, up one degree, you know, four degrees to the right. It's continuous while he's maneuvering this craft um, down onto the surface of the moon until eventually, of course, you get landed. So Buzz said, at that point, he said, I thought I'd gone blind. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I couldn't see anything. And then I realized it was the sweat inside my visor. Wow. So I flipped the visor up and I wiped the brow as it were. And I looked across to Neil, calm as a cucumber, no, no, no reaction <laughs> at all. All he did was he pointed to the fuel gauge and he said, the fuel had nine seconds left. He had Whoa. nine seconds to go before he had to put this craft down on this. Now, can you imagine? One degree Gosh. left, two degrees right. And he's watching the, the fuel gauge go lower and lower and lower. I mean, an act of bravery and courage. It's almost impossible to conceive of what they, or what Neil went through at that moment. Yeah. They, yeah, were, right. they were wonderful, wonderful, courageous people. I only met Buzz, I never did meet Neil Armstrong, mm. but um, he, he was just so funny at the dinner, I think he was with his fourth or fifth wife, but I'm just <laughs> having a wonderful time. And I didn't we... have an iPhone, so I didn't <laughs> <laughs> When's the memoir the coming best. out, Tony? I know there's a, there's a biography of you that's come out, right? Are you writing it? Surely you have no, to commit this, this no, stuff to, no, no. to paper. My, my wife would sympathise. 
she's always telling my, I've got three teenage children. Yeah. She said, they don't know anything that you've done. I said, no, I can't remember much of it. I mean, it's all... <laughs> it's been lovely hearing some of your stories from uh, a, a fairly glittering career. And uh, you've certainly met a lot of my heroes and um, a lot of people who uh, I didn't even think would be on the radar. But there you go. We're up to spacemen and, and presidents and everything. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. What, are your, immediate, what are your immediate plans now? What are you, what are you involved Listen, with? Listen, I'm a retired old age pensioner. I get Good up in stuff. the morning, I have my breakfast, I read the newspaper, I do a quiz, uh, and then I read, I go for a walk. I have a wonderful time. Sounds brilliant. That sounds ideal. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for speaking to us. Honestly, it's been such an honour. Yeah, um, it's st- been a pleasure. It's been fun. It's still been fun. working through your, your filmography. There are many yeah. more films of yours that I have to watch. So I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed that glittering edition of What Goes Around. And thank you very much for listening each and every time. We really appreciate your company as we spin our yarns about the music business. But listen, we do this for free. So do something for us, yeah? Go tell a friend. Go retweet one of our tweets. Go repost one of our Facebook posts. Go Instagram the heck out of us. Make us your story. Because the only way we're going to reach a wider audience is through your hard work. So get on it, boys and girls. Next time.